0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book on June the 18th, 1959. It is number 11 of a series entitled, What is Man? which comes as a part of a larger series, Christian Fundamentals. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are sharing with us in this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you read together with us Revelation 21 and 22 One of the characteristics of the Bible is this peculiar character of correspondence. That is to say, part echoing part. It may be a little bit artificial, but it's nevertheless a purpose. The Bible begins, after the creation of man, with a garden in which there are two trees the tree of life which apparently was never touched, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was. And ever since that day, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with its fruits and its consequences, have characterized the whole of human existence. For that brought in <coughs> sin and death. But when we come to the last chapters of the book of the Revelation, we find the blessed words, no more pain." No more crying, no more death, no more curse, and we find a tree of life there again. And this time, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And in the last chapter, the Revised reading, verse 14, Blessed are they that have washed their robes. There is nothing in the English to confuse the word robe with commandment. But when you know the word robe is stoli, and the command that is entoli, you can quite see that they sound very much alike. And the better reading is, blessed are they that have washed their robes, that they may have right to the tree of life. We are considering the nature of man in this series. And we are first of all interested in the fact that he came from the hand of God, upright, innocent. The book of Ecclesiastes says, as for God, he made man upright. But man sought out many inventions. That was afterwards. But the story goes on very, very rapidly to temptation and fall. And the wages of sin is death. We are not told in the scriptures that sin passed upon all men. We are told that death passed upon all men. And because we are a mortal race, and because we are now denominated flesh and not spirit, it's absolutely certain that not one of us will ever go through life without committing sin. It's only when we have the power of the spirit that sin becomes an impossibility. So here we are this evening, we're going to focus attention upon what sort of people we are, you and me if we are seeking to minister to somebody else. We are not doctors and nurses that are immune and above the temptations and problems and difficulties of our patient. We are one with them. And the Epistle to the Galatians reminded some in the church that if a man be overtaken in a fault, or be overtaken by a fault as it might be as well, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self. That's the sort of people we should be when we come upon another person who is suddenly caught out or caught by evil. We all belong to the same race and there's no exception. Now, I have attempted in this series this evening, uh, it may seem trivial to you for me to do it, but I felt it was one of the ways in which we may get a collection of statements of Scripture concerning the fallibility, the frailty of man as he is now. It's one of the things we must consider and very few of us have gone through life up to now or will go through it without having some contact with a doctor's uh, diagnosis or a hospital chart. If you do, I don't know whether you're fortunate or otherwise, but you would be an exception. I always remember the feeling I had when I had to go out in front of a congregation of people the very next day almost, that I had nearly all my teeth out. But I got over it by saying, well friends, if you haven't been there, you'll be there soon. So I'm not going to attempt to leave out all the SHs and THs, I'll do the best I can. Because, you see, we can't apologise for these things, we have to face the facts. However fair we may look upon the surface, there is within us that which left to itself ends in corruption. Not a very pleasant subject, neither is sin, neither is death, and most surely it wasn't a pleasant thing for our Saviour to come into this world to bear that sin and put it away by the sacrifice of himself. So here we are, we are looking at it in this way. I don't want to be apparently trifling, but isn't it good to know we have a physician? I've got a reference there, Luke 10.33. Luke 10.33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. That's the point in this Samaritan. He was just a contrast to the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side. The peculiar character of our physician is he knew it was a plague spot but he didn't hesitate to come into the infected area. I don't know whether you have a loathing and a a shrinking from contact with that sort of thing. I must confess I have. And I could quite sympathise with my youngest sister who in India fought against the idea that she should take part in work among the lepers. I think it was very fine to think she did because it showed that when she did go into it, she did that which she felt was right in the sight of God. Fifteen years among lepers, always keeping a certain distance from them, always knowing that the little coins they used in their uh, spending were dropped into disinfectant immediately. And to remember that leprosy is a type of sin among believers in the Old Testament Scriptures. Not, not the type of sin of the outside world. It kept a man away from the service and worship of God and separated him from his people. So here we have this one who came down to where we were. His name is Emmanuel. When you go to a hospital, you generally see a little notice sticking up over one of the doors, Dr. So-and-so, and that's the one you go to. Tomorrow morning, I shall be sitting, waiting for a little bell to ring to go in to see Dr. Russell. Well, he certainly has come where I shall be, but never in the sense that this doctor. For Dr. Russell may be sympathetic with me, but my doctor, he bore my sins in his own body on the tree. He was a man of sorrows. He was wounded for my transgressions. I have not been lightly healed by his stripes. I am healed. Well, now let's have a look at this diagnosis. I learned by this chart, if this is to be trusted, that the word healing and the word salvation are very often the same word. Would you look at the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? Here we have a man that has been healed, and now the Apostle is going to use it as a point. He says in chapter 4, verse 9, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom he crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Now that's one of the words that could be translated salvation. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there the salvation. There's an article in front of it, and we can retranslate it. Neither is there the healing in any other. He says, you see that man healed? Well, neither is there the great spiritual healing. It's the same word as salvation. That man is a picture of salvation. So nearly every miracle of Christ that was wrought upon the bodies of men to heal them of their disease here was also a shadow of a greater healing that was to take place. The eyes of the heart being opened, the deaf hearing the word of God at last, and so on. So now we've got the thought that salvation, among other things, is not only a deliverance from bondage, but also is a healing of that terrible disease which no physician on earth can ever touch, can ever uh, tackle. Now with regard to the diagnosis, I put there two words, your ancestry and the symptoms. Uh, the doctor, if he knows his job, he doesn't say, uh, what's the matter with you? Cough? Take that and say, oh no, he wants to know a little bit about you, if he knows his job. I, I remember my mother, I speak with all love about her, but she was a character. Perhaps I create after a thought, I know. But she told me later in life, she said, oh, she said, I've taken any amount of cough mixture, because I didn't like to say stomach to the doctor. she go to the doctor with, with something to do with the stomach, and she said, in me chest, hoping he'd understand it, he gave her cough mixture. That's living in the days of Victoria. Well, there's no mistaking diagnosis here, friends. Whatever you say in the presence of this doctor, he needs no man to tell him, it says in John's Gospel. He knew what was in man. So a very fine man came to him one night, and he said in a very patronizing way, Rabbi, he called Jesus of Nazareth a Rabbi. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no one could do these miracles except be God with him. And Jesus answered him. Now you generally expect an answer to be an answer to what he said. No. Except a man be born again. Oh. I said, you didn't come to tell me I was a clever man. you came because you were conscious of something wrong with him. And I know what it is. He needed that no one should tell him. He could tell. But it's very good for us to express it. I was only reading recently how foolish it is for men and women to go to a doctor and make a half-confession of what's the matter with them, covering something up, because it's against your very interest. You may be ashamed of something that you've got to confess, but if you don't tell the doctor and he doesn't know it, well, then you'll not be healed as you should. And when you come to this doctor, well, you can't cover it up, for he knows beforehand that he loves you just the same. So, although you won't tell your best friend, tell him. You know how David was a whole year suffering because he would not acknowledge the terrible sin into which he fell. And at last, he confessed. And he entered into the joy of his salvation once again. Well, now we come to the symptoms. What are the symptoms? Well, I've just got Heart, ears, eyes—the whole body is sick. From let's read what it says in Isaiah chapter one about God's people. Anyhow, he says in Isaiah one verse five: Why should you be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick; the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither modified with ointment. Well, that's a statement. From the sole of the foot to the crown of the head. Or if you turn to Romans, the third chapter, look at the list that the Apostle has lifted out of the Old Testament to speak about God's chosen people. He's not necessarily speaking about the outside wicked world, but here he lifts out of the Old Testament descriptions of those who were the people of God. Romans, the third chapter. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? That's the Jew. Better than the Gentile? No, in no wise. For we have both proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin as it is written. Now, as it is written is Old Testament. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now comes the speci- the specification. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Do you notice how much they said about that part of your body which has to do with speaking? Throat, mouth, lips, God puts a tremendous emphasis upon the power of the spoken word for either good or evil. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, the way of peace are they not known, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's a diagnosis of human nature, which is very, very searching. I said there, the heart, we suffer from heart failure. When you look at Psalm 73, 26, Psalm seventy-three twenty-six. 26. Here's a man whose heart failed him uh, because he was, became envious of the wicked. He saw people prospering and he was suffering. And he began to eat into his heart and make him bitter. And he said, I have washed my hands in innocency. And then he went into the sanctuary of God. And he said in verse 25 of Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His heart failed, but God would not, and that was his strength. And then if you turn to Jeremiah 17:9, to a much quoted text. Jeremiah 17, It says in the ninth verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, that's bad enough as it stands. But if you look at the 15th chapter and the the 18th verse, I think it is. The 18th verse. Now, let's see. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable which refuses to be healed? That word incurable is the word translated deceitful. It doesn't say necessarily that the heart of man is deceitful above all things but above all things else it's incurable. That's what he's saying. We needn't try to make it worse than it is. This is bad enough. That was the verdict that was passed on me Although I may not seem to be very ill just at this moment, I went to the hospital, I complained about the pains I had, they put me through the x-ray, and then he told me, frankly, he says, well, what you've got incurable. Well, I said, that's all right, I know now where I am, that's the rest of my life, yes. Isn't it good it's not for, for further on? But here's the incurability, and the word Enosh, which is translated deceitful or incurable, is one of the names translated man. One of the names, one of the words translated, man, is the word incurable. So that's one of the names of the whole lot of us. Well, that's a revelation concerning ourselves which is not very flattering, but nevertheless may be very useful. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. We have to take purges sometimes because of the accumulation of evil in our human bodies. And here's a purging which no human physician could ever give. No human medicine could ever make you whiter than snow in the sight of God. But it's only translating it into terms of understanding down here that we may retranslate it. And if a man could fall into the sin both of adultery and murder and then be cleansed whiter than snow, there's hope for any one of us if we'll only attend the same physician and get him to do the diagnosis and and offer us the same treatment. Well now, there's one or two things that I would like to run over, not necessarily in the order they're there, they're just to stimulate our thoughts. First of all, at the fall of man, the scripture says in Genesis 6-3, concerning Adam, he also is flesh. It looks as though something had taken place to rob man of something and now there he is. As though God said, what could you expect of him? He also is flesh. And in Romans the 8th chapter, that's coming along to our own period, you see how the flesh is spoken of in that chapter. Chapter 8, 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There's the characteristic. You may not be desperately sinful and wicked all the time. In fact, you may be desiring to please God all the time. But I know one thing about you. You'll be beaten many a time. Will you look at chapter 7? Verse 14. For I know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. Carnal is fleshly. Sold under sin. Well, what's that matter Peter Paul? When he said, that which I do, I allow not. And what I would, that I do not. And what I hate, I do. This is a split mind. Here's another disease. We wish to please God sometimes. The flesh is weak. It beats the whole thing. So back in Romans, the 8th chapter, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh did. That must be supplied mentally. What we couldn't do, God did through Christ. And condemned sin in the flesh. And while we're dealing with this a little further down in the same chapter, it says in verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. To be fleshly minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the fleshly mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You and I are going to be delivered from this peculiar bondage in which we find ourselves before ever we can start on the pathway that leads to pleasing God. And not one of us can do it for anyone else. We can't do it for ourselves. God alone through Christ can work that miracle. Now, while we have Romans, let's notice chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in the lusts thereof. You have a mortal body. We sometimes speak in the language of the Old Testament that our body is fearfully and wonderfully made. And the more we understand its functions... Or the more we probe into it, the more wonderful it becomes. And yet, here it is, mortal. In the eighth chapter, in the eleventh chapter, uh, sorry, the eighth chapter of Romans and the eleventh verse, we have these words: "But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you." So there's hope that the mortal body should be quickened. But you may say, well, yes, I suppose it will be in the last day in the resurrection. And like Martha said, oh no, oh no. This man can say to you this, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's now. I'm not going to live in the flesh in the glory. So the quickening of the mortal body can take place now. It may be very slow to manifest itself, it may not be very obvious, but it's there. I'm sure that the Apostle meant that because he ought to have been dead many times. He was in death oft, he was despairing of life, he was left for dead, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. The man went through a thousand deaths, as it were. Yet, he lived to touch the tape and says, I have finished my course. Nero, you can do what you like, I'm finished, you haven't finished me. That's the sort of spirit we must all have if we serve the Lord. Well, now let's take another step. The members of our body, some of them we know something about, some we know very little. I always remember my old dad saying, he said, I suppose I've got a liver. I don't know it. He was fortunate, wasn't he? He had other things which he did know. Very few of us go through life without knowing we've got members, and they make themselves very obvious sometimes. Well, the members of the body are spoken of in Romans 6, verse 13, in these terms. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Your members. The hand that once did evil can now take a pen and write a message of hope to a sinner. The mouth that once spoke evil can now be used as an instrument of bringing life and peace to someone who is out of the way. The members of our body. And chapter 7, verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But in verse 23 we read, But I see another law in my members. Oh, it's not only death. There's life working if we belong to this position. Warring against the law of my mind. And bringing into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from this body, the body of this death? And then he breaks out into a thanksgiving. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's got no other one to thank, and no possibility of redemption apart from him. Whatever well, with regard to the body, that is, the external instrument. But the mind, we've touched upon the mind in Romans 7. Will you look at Ephesians chapter 2, 13? Chapter 2, 13. Uh, just wait a minute, I want to make sure of this, chapter 2, 3 first, I was on the wrong verse. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There can be sins of the flesh which are vulgar, there can be sins of the mind which are superior, but in the sight of God, they're all sins. Sins of the mind. Now, what about the mind that God has given us? Chapter 4, 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not in as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. All this, this is something that God has given us. The inspiration of the Almighty giveth us understanding, says the book of Job. What has happened to this mind? How distorted it is. How difficult it is even to get a rational expression of what you believe. And again it says about it in verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. No word for sin there, you see. Darkened, alienated, ignorance. That should help us to be very guarded about our boasting that unaided reason can find its way through the labyrinth Of this darkness now. Well, then we take a stage further. There's a spirit of the mind mentioned. Uh, You'll find that in Romans seven fifteen. We must go back. There's so much in Romans six and seven and eight. Romans seven fifteen. A split mind. I, I ought to have said, and I've mentioned it before. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. For what I hate, that do I. Here, a man who says, "I try to do this, and I find myself opposed." He's got a double ego. It's a awful thing to meet a person with a split mind, isn't it? We find them mentioned in the newspapers. Well, friends, we've all got a touch of it. If we only knew. Here it is. Have you never been in this position, friends? Never had this conflict? A feeling you know what's right and yet you're driven in some way to do the very opposite and you cry out, Oh wretched man that I am. Why have I done such a thing as this? Well, then in Romans 6, while we've got Romans, there's another feature mentioned. In the sixth chapter, and the sixth verse, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Do you know anything about the old man? No? I wouldn't like to tempt you, friends. I've I've repeated, I'm sure, and I know I've said it before, but it's good enough to illustrate my point again. And some friends might be listening to this who haven't heard it before. It is said that somebody entered into the study of Spurgeon and in the, in the course of their conversation, he told Spurgeon that he'd never sinned for the last seven years. So Spurgeon picked up a glass of water that was in his desk and he threw it in the man's face. And the man said, Ah, oh, oh, said Spurgeon, the old man wasn't dead. He was only fainted and the glass of water woke him up. That's true of us all, friends. If you and I are put in the right place or the wrong place, you'll discover that the old man hasn't been destroyed. He's only been put out a working order, but he's there all the time till travelling days at us. And then I would add one little bit, and I don't want to say this without feeling, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think it was uh, the Reverend Webb Peplow at a Keswick conference, where Keswick stresses very much sanctification. And if you stress sanctification unduly, you may become so pious that nobody knows what to do with you. And Web Pablo said, friends, be watchful that when you put off the old man, you don't put on the old woman. Now, that sounds very unchivalrous, um, doesn't it? But you know what it means. Nobody wants a man to be an old woman, do they? At least I don't. Neither do you. It must be the real thing. Now, you and I can never put off the old man. We are told in Ephesians to put off the old man with his deeds and his conversation. But only the cross of Christ has touched the old man himself. So, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative, that henceforth we should not serve sin, nor be under an obligation as once we were. Well now, mostly when you go to hospital, unless it's a very obvious case, they say, well I want you to have an x-ray. So down you go and you're stripped and you're put on this bench and you there you are and presently there's a little click and they've got a picture of that which is within. And then they examine it. And then they tell you. Is there such a thing as an x-ray in the scriptures? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. I think in the hospital of God they've got a very effective one. You read this passage. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful. Quick, of course, doesn't mean in movement, but it's living. The quick and the dead. Of course, you know the way in which they speak about getting across a road, you'll be quick or you'll be dead, but that's only playing with words. The quick here is quickly, Living. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, that goes one better than the x-ray. You see, on that table, you can't alter the fact that they can see divide between joints and marrow and all the various organs of the body, but this one is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's good to know this, before ever you go into his surgery for treatment that he can see you through and through, however much you're covered up, you're naked and open to him. The thoughts and intents of the heart as well as the external actions are known to him. That is his X-ray. If you will turn to 2 Peter, chapter 1, you will find a a word embedded in the Greek which is in common use with us just now. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 8 But if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he is purged from his old sins. Now in that verse 9 is the word myopia. If you've ever gone to an optician and you go through the testing, you may discover that you're suffering from myopia. Here's the Apostle Peter saying, he that lacketh these things is blind and suffering from myopia. He cannot see afar off. And it uh, has to do with the mind as well as the eye because it says, he has forgotten. He has forgotten. Now, memory has to do with our sickness. Or sickness has to do with memory. Or you meet with some people and their minds are unhinged. Their body has reacted on their mind and particularly with regard to their memory. I won't turn to the passage. I'll, re- I'll remind you that in Genesis, Joseph did a good act to a man in prison. And a man was restored to his office. And it says, that he just forgot Joseph. That's just written there. That's just what people do. When they're in trouble, they're going to do I don't know what. And when they're delivered out of it, they just clean forget. And then there came a moment when he said, oh, I remember my misdeeds this day. There's a man in prison and he did be good and I forgot all about it. Oh, yes, friends. But on the other hand, it is good to have a bad memory in some ways. In the Epistle to the Ephesians, it says, "Remember that once you were Gentiles afar off." But in Philippians, it says, "Forget the things that are behind when you're running for the race." It's good to have a good forgettery if you're running in the race, because if you start looking back, you'll be Lot's wife; you'll be out. So the apostle says, "Forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth of the things which are before, I press toward the mark." So there we have a memory that should be keen, and then many things forgotten. But if you look at Psalm 106, you'll see how God has charged the children of Israel with this ungrateful element, this soon forgetting. Psalm 106, verse 13 It says uh speaking about being delivered at the Red Sea, verse nine. He saved them, verse ten, the waters covered their enemies, verse eleven. They believed, they sang his praise, verse thirteen they soon forgot. There it is. That's a touch of human nature, friends, that makes the whole world keep. You know those words of Robbie Burns? I don't say we go to Robbie Burns for our theology but he knew the nature of man, for he got the nature himself. And in verse 21, same psalm, speaks about his people coming out of Egypt, and there at Horeb they made a, a calf and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass.
1: They forget
0: God, their Saviour, which had done great things in Egypt. What a lot then depends upon having a good memory. A good memory prompted by Thanksgiving. Well then we have here other features. I don't, there's the outward man and the new man. But there's one element about the human body that I must include before we finish. And the signal has gone up telling me that I haven't got very much time left. Two Corinthians chapter four and five. Will you turn to that? And We should have to finish on that note. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll pick it up at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's a comfort, isn't it? God knows that. We have a treasure. But the treasure that God has to put it for the moment is earthen vessels. Very earthen sometimes that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And then he says in verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And verse 11, in case you're not sure it means now, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, that's now, You see the possibilities. The cure begins. We'll never be completely cured, but we may be, to a large extent, quickened and revived. So we'll see what he says in verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, his comfort, friends, the outward man is perishing in every one of us, you and me. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Isn't that wonderful too? So there's a double movement going on. We are pa- passing through our pilgrimage and the outward man is getting worn out. But if we belong to Christ, we have already passed from death unto life. Colossians 3 says, Christ who is our life. Our life is hid with Christ in God. That's safe enough. And that is being being renewed. Now it says in the, chapter 5, verse 1, For we know, that if the earthly house of this tabernacle or tent were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He's still speaking about this human body. This human body is likened to a tent. The word tabernacle conjures up too gorgeous a construction. This is a tent, just a tent. A movable tent. A poor little structure. A rough wind will blow it down. Or if you've ever endured torments by going out to enjoy yourself and sleeping in a tent, you know that an old cow could rub its head up and down and put the old lock down on top of you. That's like life. That's all it is, a tent. But he says we are carrying with us the title deeds of a building of God. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. For we that are in this tent do groan, being burdened. And so he's used this figure of a tent, and used this figure of a house. Now we read, among other things, I've not mentioned them, Job speaks about the house of clay, I think we've got time perhaps to look at that if I can just um, light upon it. I believe it is in the fourth chapter of Job. If it isn't, you'll say, what a gorgeous memory you've got. Well, yes, I'm telling you some of us have got bad ones. Oh, I've got a good one, friends. Job 4, verse 18, 19. Behold, he put He put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay. That's what we dwell in, friends. It's only a reference back to God took of the dust of the earth, and out of that dust the body we have is composed. We dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth, a moth is a very frail insect, isn't it? How easy it is to go like that with it, and that's the end of it. You don't think of it a second time. What is your life, says James? It is a vapor that passes away. Now, friends, we're in the presence of one who says, Fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. That's the one we believe in. That's the one we trust in. So that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, I guess I should disappoint some people over the tonight's subject, because I've departed a bit from the usual examination of the question of the nature of man. But this is surely the nature of man that we are concerned about, because it's exposed at every turn to the inroads of evil and crying out by its very condition for the Son of God. And that is our supreme witness. So once again, I commend to you the teaching of Scripture. Now we're back again where we start. At the beginning, there was the tree of life. At the end, there's the tree of life. And in the middle, the whole of the Bible is taken up with the results of taking the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead, with its death and its sin and then the glorious no-mores that come at the end. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more curse. Blessed are they who have washed their robes and have a right to the tree of life. Let's be thankful for the good physician. Let's be thankful for the healing which he has brought about. Let's avoid that healing which is condemned in the Scriptures when God said about some of his people, that they heal their wound lightly. That's the difficulty, isn't it? You can go to a doctor and all that he does is to palliate. He never bothers to go down deep. He says, you take this and you'll be all right. And all he's done is dope. Poor man, he can't help himself. They're all waiting for him outside. But this great physician, he doesn't really give you a palliation and a dope. He goes right to the seat of things. The heart of man is frail. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know the answer. And we know the answer brings with it not merely accusation and dread, but brings with it the hope of healing and of life. So I commend to you once again the study of this wonderful word which throws light upon the nature of man. May we be thankful that our Saviour did not hold that. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin was condemned as our substitute that we might one day have a body like unto his body of glory to sin and to sigh no more.